invite you to take your Bibles as we did at our last Lord's Table meditation and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 50, Isaiah 5-0. Our text is going to be, again, from Isaiah 50 and verse 7, but I want to back up and begin by reading with verses 4 and following. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And then our text, verse 7. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Once again, let's pray for the help and the grace of God. Most blessed and gracious God, we do thank you and bless you that you have sent your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus, to save us from our sins. And we do thank you that even though we hang our heads in shame, Lord Jesus, because of our sins, there was no reason for shame in you. And you were pure and innocent and undefiled and suffered shame on our behalf and not on your own account. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to follow you with your determination, that as you were determined to save us, help us, Lord, to be determined to serve you and to love you to the end. And we pray that your spirit would teach us these things during this hour. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. How many times do you try to do something before you decide it's not worth it, and so you give up. Recently, I read of a Polish man that had failed the nation's driver's license a test for 192 times. And this was according to the state uh, TVP. And according to the broadcaster, the unnamed 50-year-old has tried to pass the written exam for 17 years to no avail, costing him an estimated $1,550 in fees in the process. But history suggests he should keep going, because in 2009, a 68-year-old South Korean woman passed her driver's license exam after taking it more than 900 times. Well, she didn't give up, and in that respect, she's an example. Our text describes a Savior who refused to give up. And when we read in verse 7, Therefore I have set my face like a flint, we find the perfect fulfillment of these words in the Lord Jesus Christ. The image, as you recall from our last meditation, the image of a flint is a perfect description of determination to accomplish a task. And it reminds us of Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
Language is very similar, not using the word flint, but he set his face, just as in this passage, I have set my face like a flint. Knowing full well that as he got to Jerusalem, he would be falsely accused and mocked and spat upon, buffeted, scourged, and then taken out and crucified. He set his face like a flint to give himself up to that awful degradation and torment that awaited for him, awaited him there in that city. And he did this because he was determined to save you and me from our sins. Now the image of setting one's face like a flint is a vivid depiction of inflexible determination. Flint was a kind of rock that was very hard and suitable for making tools and weapons. It wouldn't chipped in the right way. It could make a very sharp uh, a cutting edge. And the image of hardening one's face or brow, it can be used either in a bad or it can be used in a good sense. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 4, God describes the shamelessness and stubbornness of Israel when he says, I know you were obstinate and your neck was an iron sinew and your brow bronze. And yet this image of having a hardened face, as it were, it can be used also in a good sense. It can describe determination to do what is right. And so God says to Ezekiel, Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like an adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead strong against their foreheads. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. This is the picture that our text gives of the Lord Jesus. He was not dismayed by the opposition arrayed against him. The stubborn, rebellious looks on the faces of those that opposed him did not deter him for pursuing what he had come to do. Now, in our communion meditation a month ago, we took up only the first point in your outlines. And we noted in particular his undaunted resolve tested. From eternity, the Lord Jesus knew full well what it was going to take to save us from our sins. And for you and me, it's a good thing that we don't know everything ahead of time. We would get too discouraged. It would be too depressing. We wouldn't be able to take it. The future, though, lay before the Lord Jesus in great vividness. He could see with, like with white-knuckled reality, as it were, when we see a terribly moving battle, battle taking place on, on our televisions. He could see it all played out before him, what was going to take place. And after he came into this world, even as a 12-year-old boy, at the feast of the Passover, which depicted his death, when his parents found him at last in the temple, he asked them, well, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And so even as a boy, the dark shadow of Calvary, the terrible business of the Passover that was being signified there, this filled his thoughts even at that early point. And throughout his life, he set his determination to redeem his people, and this was an all-consuming passion that constantly burned in his soul. Throughout his life, the dark shadow of Calvary cast its ominous hues over his soul. And again and again, it would come out in his speech. On one occasion, he said to his disciples, I have a baptism to be baptized with, 
and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. That which was ahead, he saw it as being like a baptism. He was going to be inundated by the wrath that was going to be poured out upon his soul. But knowing full well all the horrors that lay ahead from his childhood all the way up until the time of his suffering and death, Jesus set his face like a flint until that stupendous task was finished. And furthermore, throughout his life, at critical points, this resolve was tested. And we noticed some of those tests. His resolve was tested by the offers of the prince of this world. Satan's crowning temptation, you remember, in the wilderness was that of showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and saying to him, if you just sit, you do a little genuflection to me and then I'll, I'll give it all to you. And it was an attempt, you see, to get Jesus to give to give in to the prospect of getting the kingdom without suffering. You can get it a different way, Satan is saying. But Jesus' face was set like a flint, and he refused that offer, that easy way out. Then also his resolve was tested by the acclaim of the multitude. The people wanted to take him by force and make him king. He could have accepted that easier task. He could have accepted that glamorous role of setting up an earthly throne, but his heart, you see, was set on something else. It was set on the cross. And Christ's resolve was also tested by the entreaties of his friends. You remember how when he, his disciples, they, they tried to get Jesus to, to not carry out his mission. He spoke about the impending time of the cross, and Peter takes him aside. He begins to rebuke him, and he begins to say, Lord, this will not happen to you. And Jesus sees that Satan is behind uh, Peter's words. And his face is set like a flint. And he refuses Peter's offer, his misguided satanic suggestion. His resolve, we saw, was also tested by the unworthiness of his disciples. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. All the rest of the disciples forsook him. And it would have been a real temptation to say, why am I going to do this? For these ingrates? Why am I going to die and suffer for them? His resolve was also tested by the bitter taste of the cup that he was about to drink. With even the very first taste of that cup in the garden, his soul was immersed in an unbearable spiritual agony that threatened to take his life. My soul, he said, is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. I don't know about you, but I have never been that deeply in sorrow that I was about to die be crushed under that, uh, that sense, that sorrow. His soul, you see, began, as it were, even then to be plunged into the fiery furnace of damnation. And he, and he shrank from it. And so repeatedly he prayed, Oh, my Father, if it is be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will. And when he was not given a reprieve, without a murmuring word, he gave himself up to die. And then his resolve was also tested by the ease with which he could have escaped the cross. At any moment along the way, he could easily have escaped the, all the trials that were coming upon him. You remember how when Peter took a swipe at the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, David said to him, put your sword in your place. Do you not think that I now can pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it might happen thus? At any moment, you see, he could have freed himself. He could have, 
He could have delivered himself from all the horrors that awaited him. His resolve, we also saw, was tested by the taunts of the wicked. And it was tested finally by the unmitigated agonies of Golgotha. For hours he suffered. He endured the physical agonies of the cross. The tearing of the spikes through his hands and feet. The pain of having his flesh ripped apart by the scourges. The pounding headache, the fever that would have been setting in with great intensity upon him. But these sufferings, these were just an outward display of the spiritual excruciations that he endured. And who who could ever understand what he was that he went through? What uh, mortal being could ever understand the extremity of that which forced from his lips, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, even as Jesus descended into those hellish depths, even those unknown agonies, as the Greek liturgy puts it, even this could not dissuade him from enduring the penalty of our sins to the very end. Well, in these ways, his undaunted resolve was tested to the uttermost. But we turn now, having considered that first and main point I sketched out, it's almost like a life story of the Lord Jesus. We now come to our second, third, and fourth points, God willing. We want to look at how Jesus' resolve was balanced. Thirdly, how it was sustained. And then fourthly, how it should be imitated. And again, at various points, I want to express my deep indebtedness to Spurgeon and McLaren for their thoughts upon this subject. In the second main place, I want to speak to you now about how his undaunted resolve was balanced. And here I wish to point out briefly the remarkable balance that exists between the stern resolve of verse 7 and the gracious traits that are pictured in the preceding verses and the following verses. The image of setting your face like a flint, you see, this 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 picture of determination. It's almost like a martial picture, a warlike type of a picture. It speaks of resistance against opposition. And you see people that tend to have that kind of trait in them more naturally, where they will fight against opposition. Such people tend to be hard and insensitive. But we see in Jesus a perfect balance between this inflexible resolve and the tender traits that are expressed, for instance, in verses 4 through 6. And notice, first of all, that in Jesus there is this stern resolve together with loving gentleness. Notice what we read in verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Now, Often we associate the stern resolve that is pictured in verse 7 with a firmness that's developed at the expense of, of understanding and feeling for others. One of the great generals of World War II was General George Patton. Patton led the United States troops into the Mediterranean theater with an invasion of Casablanca in 1942, and he soon established himself as an effective commander by 
rapidly rehabilitating the demoralized 2nd United States Army Corps. And he commanded the United States 7th Army during the Allied invasion of Sicily, where he was the first Allied commander to reach Messina. But there he was embroiled in a controversy after he slapped two shell-shocked soldiers. And therefore, as punishment for what he did, he was temporarily removed from the battlefield and uh, from the battlefield command. And so there was in him this hardness, and it was helpful to be a soldier that way. But he couldn't understand how a soldier could be shell-shocked and uh, be terrorized and so forth. And, and he just was, was just un, unsympathetic whatsoever. And he got punished for it. But as McLaren puts it about our Lord Jesus and about others by way of contrast, flint-like resolve is often like a warrior chariot or artillery train that goes crashing across the field, though it be over shrieking men and broken bones and the wheels splash in blood. But as verse 4 demonstrates, the suffering Lord Jesus has a gentle tongue and an understanding ear. He knows how to speak a word in season to those who are weary. He says to such ones, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So there is this combination, you see, in the Lord Jesus of firm resolve together with loving gentleness. But then also we see, secondly, in Jesus, there is this robust masculinity with meek submission. Notice what we read in verses 5 through 6. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now in verse 5, the messianic servant, he speaks of, the, of his complete submission and the absence of any rebellion against, you see, the one who has ordained these afflictions for him. And then in verse 6, he gives us a detailed description of the kind of behavior that manifested this lack of rebellion, that manifested the opposite, that demonstrated a complete meekness and submission to the sufferings that have been ordained for him. There is, as it were, what we might call a majestic meekness in his behavior that is unparalleled. And in verse 6, it also stresses the voluntary nature of these sufferings. You see, he's not led as like a lamb to the slaughter, as if he's just totally ignorant of it all. He sets himself. He is active, you see, voluntarily submitting to the task that is before him. And instead of saying that there's a scripture of the verse, it doesn't say that men beat him. Instead, he declares that he gave his back to those who smote him. He voluntarily offered himself to the terrible lashes of the scourge, tearing through his flesh. And furthermore, he gave his cheeks to those who plucked the hair. Now, Middle Easterners, they 
regarded the beard as a sign of freedom and respect. You remember when Hanan sent David's men back with their beards half shaven. It was a, a sign of contempt. It was a sign of rejection. And the end of the verse, so you see to yank out somebody's beard as they did with Jesus. This was a sign of contempt. And the end of the verse, it fills out the picture even more. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Our natural reaction to false accusations, our natural reaction, you see, to abusive words, to somebody spitting in our face, our natural reaction, you see, is to strike back. And yet throughout all of this torture, all of this abuse, all of this shame, the sufferer maintains a spirit of complete meekness and lack of revenge. What one of us could have done this? What one of us could have gone through this kind of injustice and abuse without at least having welling up in our hearts a little bit of the anger that might be there and resentment that might be there? And it's only one who is completely without sin could he undergo such mistreatment with such patience and with such meekness. And this meek submission joined together with the flint-like resolve of our text this is this combination, it's without parallel among men. And then thirdly, as we see this balance, in Jesus there is steely determination combined with tender compassion. Notice what we read in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. The Lord Jesus was plunged into the hellish darkness that was so dark there was no light. You remember how the sun was covered, as it were, at noonday. And in the depths of that impenetrable darkness that was in his soul, the deeper darkness that took place on that day, in the depths of that impenetrable darkness, the Lord Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet in those dark depths, in faith he cries out to the very one whose wrath has been poured out upon him. And he still calls him by faith, My God, my God, he says. You're my God. And therefore, he is especially equipped when he now deals with somebody that's also going through a dark period and can see no light. He's equipped to speak with tenderness and compassion to those in their depression, plunged into such dark depths that they can't see light, they can't see any good that could come, any light at the end of the tunnel. And this kind of tender compassion coming from the very same person who perseveres with steely determination in the face of unparalleled opposition and contempt and suffering, this is unheard of among men. So here we have a warrior king as well as a tender priest. That face which was such a window into his soul. A face that's ready to shear, shed tears of pity. While at the same time it was set like a flint. That eye brimming with tears was at the same time fixed on a goal. And with unflinching resolve, he determined to persevere to the very end. 
There was this wonderful balance, you see, in the manner in which he manifested this, this determination, this undaunted resolve. But now to come to our third made heading. Notice with me that his undaunted resolve was sustained. What was it that helped him during that time? Well, how, did it, how was he sustained in this determination? It's important that we understand that our text is speaking of Christ not so much as God, but as Christ as a man enduring sufferings. And it describes, you see, the resolve of his perfect human nature. And it's important that we see this because he's set before us to imitate. He's a man that we can follow in, in, in our humanity. We can imitate his humanity. And the same realities that helped him and gave him, you see, this undaunted resolve, this is set forth, you see, and described to us as available to us as well. But what were these realities? The first of these realities was his divine schooling. Again, let's look at what verse 4 says. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Jesus went to school. His teacher was the father. And he didn't engage, engage you see, in saving us from our sins as a part-time hobby. He never played at saving sinners. But instead, like the burnt offerings of the Old Testament, he was wholly consumed on the altar, as it were, of saving us from our sins. And the verse that we just read, it speaks of the way in which the Father was always near him, waking him up every morning and then teaching Jesus in his human nature morning by morning. And as a son, he learned obedience more and more by the things that he suffered. And in a similar way, you and I, you see, we can only cultivate the grace of flint-like determination, you see. We can only cultivate that kind of resolution by hearing from our God morning by morning. And through training that comes through suffering and through trials. If you want to cultivate, you see, this kind of steadfast resolve, it's only going to come by God teaching you morning by morning through your communing with him in the word and in prayer. This is why it's so important to be in the Bible every day, in prayer every day. And Likewise, if you want to cultivate the ability to speak a word in season to those that are weary, you need to spend God time in God's word and in prayer. And only as you seek for God's grace will you be equipped with the ability to speak words of encouragement to people that are downcast. So there was this divine schooling. And we can go to the same school. It's available to us. But there was also his conscious innocence. And this is assumed in the references to not being ashamed in verse 7. Notice again as we read that verse. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced, or I will not be ashamed. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Now the difficulties that Jesus encountered, they were not due to sin that he was ashamed of. You see, shame is the result of foolish action. 
That's when we get ashamed. And sin is the supreme form of foolishness. And so we, we, we read that he's not ashamed of anything. He, he's not, there's no folly, you see, for him to be ashamed of. And again, at the beginning of verse 8, we read, He is near who justifies me. False accusations were constantly being hurled against the Lord Jesus. Such accusations, you remember, was be, were being heaped upon Job. And supremely with Jesus, and in a lesser sense with Job, a great source of encouragement. Job went to this. Jesus went to this. A great source of encouragement is the, con- the consciousness of a clean conscience. When our consciences are defiled, dear people, this makes us cowards. In Leviticus 26, 36, Moses prophesies of that time with the Israelites having sinned against God. He says, the sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. Just a little rustling behind them. They're terrified. They run. And why? Because they've got a guilty conscience. Proverbs 28, 1, the wicked flee when nobody pursues. But the righteous are bold as a lion. It's when our conscience, you see, is a void of offense against God and man that we can be bold like Paul. And we we can have a fountain of of courage from this. It's a source of strength to us. In verse 8, we read, He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. You see, in a sense, God justified his son. He cleared him of any wrongdoing. And that's the sense in which we're using that word justified. In a similar way, God will justify you and me in the last day. Now at the moment of our conversion, we were justified by having the righteousness of Christ put to our account. But there's another kind of justification that the Bible speaks of. There's coming a day when God will justify his people in a different way. He will clear away every false charge that Wicked people have laid against them. And especially the enemies of the gospel, their lies will be exposed. And God's people will be vindicated and they will be justified in that sense. And so Matthew Henry speaks of that great day when there will be a resurrection of names as well as of bodies. And this principle, it underscores the importance, you see, of having a conscience, even now, void of offense towards God and man. And such a conscience, it will not only give us boldness in the last day, it will also give us boldness even now, when false accusations are held against us, when contempt is poured upon us, even as it was upon the Lord Jesus. A clean conscience is a wonderful help in cultivating undaunted resolve. But then there was one more thing that strengthened him to this resolve, and it was his trustworthy God. Again, let's read verse 7. For the Lord God will help me. You see, he's trusting in God for help. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. Jesus lived by faith. And that faith led to heroic resistance. It led to immovable resolution. And one of the great manifestations of his faith in his father was his continual life of prayer. 
And he's continually relying upon the Lord for strength. And again and again, we read of him spending all night in prayer. And throughout his crowded days, in the midst of many ministries, he's constantly communing with his father. And having spent his night, a night in prayer, for instance, when he comes down from the, uh, the secret mountain retreat that he's had with, the, with his father, he's strong then to face the multitude, even people dead set against him. Prayer is the language of dependence upon God. And when we take everything to God in prayer, we have the assurance that, that Christ had. And here's his assurance, the Lord will help me. This is what, came, what helped him to be so determined and not to give up. And what was God going to help him to do? Verse 7 goes on to say that he will help him by assisting him and setting his face like a flint. So these three things were means by which his undaunted resolve was sustained. His divine schooling, his conscious innocence, and his trustworthy God. But now I want to come in the final place, the fourth place, to his undaunted resolve imitated. Now we've already shown you how Christ set his face like a flint and how this took place. Through this divine schooling, his conscious innocence, his trust in God. And you and I may also cultivate this undaunted resolve by those three helps that we've just gone over. And so I'm not going to go over any more on, on that about how we can imitate Jesus in those ways. But I want to conclude this morning by urging to, you, to follow the footsteps of, the, of our resolute Jesus, and in particular to imitate him in two ways. In the first place, no matter what seems to be the likely outcome, always side with that which is right. No matter what it costs you, no matter whether you lose friends, no matter whether you lose a job, if it's right, take a stand. Jesus was resolute in taking a stand. Even when all the religious leaders condemned him, even when his disciples ran away from him, he took a stand. He stood there with his face, determined like a flint. And so I would say to you, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Better yet, dare to be like Jesus. Dare to stand alone. And in Jesus, dare to have a purpose firm. Now often we fail to do this because we fear rejection and shame. But in the end, it is the resolute, it is the determined follower of Jesus that will not be put to shame. And it's this kind of a person that gains the admiration even of unbelievers sometimes. One former Marine relates this. My Marine commanding officer called me. And he asked me why I had not participated in a particular event that was in his terms required of the entire company. As far as I can remember, it was the only time I had directly disobeyed a command. And Captain Birch said to me, who do you think you are? Well, I answered at that moment, not very much right now, sir. But I want you to know, Captain, why I said I could not participate. He said, talk fast. And I did. I declared my allegiance to Jesus Christ. And his mouth literally dropped open. 
And his final words to me were, I admire you. Get out. If your employer demands that you violate your conscience, don't do it. If your job requires that you commit to being on a rotation for working on the Lord's Day and your job is not a work of necessity or of mercy, graciously explain why you can't do that. And if your boss asks you to lie by telling somebody on the phone that he's not in the office, you say, I can't do that. It's a lie. And being like Jesus, it means, you see, taking a stand. It means refusing to capitulate to the pressure of the world to get us to sin. And it means like being like Jesus by taking a stand for what is right. Bob Jones Sr., the founder of Bob Jones University, one of his most famous sayings was this, do right, though the stars fall, do right. And another of his famous sayings was, the test of your character is what it takes to stop you. Nothing could stop Jesus from doing what was right. And it shouldn't be with us either. And then, one further word of application. No matter what discouragements or threats that you face, give your whole soul to advancing what is right. Do it with all your heart. Now, often the work of spreading the gospel, we we encounter opposition. We have opposition. People that badmouth us out there. People that resist us when we seek to speak of Christ. And you say it's getting very hard. We live in an atheistic city. And if something's hard, something harder will cut that hard thing. And therefore we have this picture, you see, of setting your face like a hard, sharp flint. And yes, telling your unconverted family members, this this is a hard thing to do. And it's true that you must be wise and you must be gracious in the timing and the manner in which you do this. But resolve, my friend, by God's grace to speak up in behalf of the Lord Jesus. Say something before you die and you regret it. If you struggle over how to present the gospel, then how about just inviting somebody to come to church? How about handing that person a tract or a booklet? In Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle, there were so many people that wanted to get in that they had to have a system of providing tickets in advance to the services. And I don't know that they purchased tickets, but somehow they made them available. I've never been able to find out exactly how that was. But he tells of an elderly Mr. Hobson that he would reserve a whole pew of tickets in advance. And it wasn't because he had a big family that he was going to bring It was because he was determined he was going to get people that were out there to fill that pew every Sunday. And so what he'd do is he'd go out to Hyde Park, Hyde Park in London, and he'd begin to invite this person and that person to the services. And in this way, he regularly filled up a row of, 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 of seats for people to hear the gospel. You see, he didn't have the gift of the gab like some people do. They can strike up a conversation and they can easily present something that's upon their mind, even one-on-one. But he would, you see, distribute printed sermons. He would invite people to come. 
And when he brought converts to join the church, he was just as excited as a mother would be over her newborn baby. And he would ask Spurgeon if he could introduce that person to him. He'd say, when can, I, can, I, can you see another, sir? I caught another, pastor. I caught another one, he would say. He was a good fisherman, you see. And he kept bringing people in that simple way to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to you that think that you don't have the gift required to lead people to Jesus, I urge you to set your face like a flint and to determine that at least you're going to give maybe a tract to a poor sinner. You're going to keep him from going to hell and never having heard of the gospel in any way. You're not going to have that blood on your head. Or you're going to invite that person to come to church. And if you're a barren Christian in this regard, I want you to think, can you bear the idea of never being even partially an instrument in bringing somebody to Jesus? Can you go through your whole life and, and not have that wonderful experience? What will you think when you get to heaven? What will you feel like then? And no doubt you'll be filled with happiness. But there'll be nobody that will come up to you and then have heaven and say, I bless God that I'm finally able to see you again. You were the one that first told me about Jesus. You won't have anybody to say anything like that to you. Now I know it's hard to tell people at work of Jesus. But I urge you, by the example of our dear Savior as set forth in this text, break your cowardly silence that holds you captive so long. Do not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cry out to God that he would help you set your face like a flint and speak in behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And I realize that not, not all of us have evangelistic gifts, but all of you, you can invite people to come, and all of you have been given some kind of gift to use in the church of Christ or another. Maybe your gift is giving encouragement. Well, set your face like a flint. Don't give up. Giving encouragement can be discouraging. There's some people that seems like they are just determined to be discouraged. Everything has a dark cloud to it. There's no silver lining. And no matter what you say, you can't, you can't cheer them up. And so you've got to be determined. You've got to have a resolve to, hit, to minister in that kind of a way. Do you love children? Maybe that's your special gift. Seek to reach out to them. Teach them kindness. Teach them patience. Tell them about Jesus. Maybe you've got technical gifts. Determine that you're going to use those gifts for the advance of the gospel. Whatever gift you have, my friend, use it to the utmost for the furtherance of the kingdom. And whatever gift or opportunity that you have, don't imagine it's going to be all peaches of cream to do the work of God. You can expect that serving Jesus is going to be inconvenient sometimes. It's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be costly. And if you're seeking to advance the cause of Christ in any way, you're going to have opposition. And the devil only bothers people that are bothering him. The world is the most opposed to the people you see whose words and deeds are contrary to its evil system. But God is stronger than Satan. God is stronger than the world. And therefore, set your face like a flint. Determine that you will trust in this God who helped Jesus, and he will also help you. Sometimes this means by starting with small goals. It doesn't mean that first of all you're going to think, well, I'm going to figure out a way to get 100 people to church next week. Well, you start small. And if you're faithful in small things, God will give you greater opportunities. 
Set your face like a flint, determined that you will do something for Jesus. And don't give up. Like Jesus, let nothing stop you from doing what he's called you to do. I think, for instance, of John Wesley. You remember how he went on horseback to preach in the open fields in different churches all over the place in England. Let me just read you a few excerpts from his diary. Sunday morning, May 5th, preached in St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday evening, May 5th, preached in St. John's, deacon said, get out, stay out. Sunday morning, May 12th, preached at St. Jude's, can't go back there either. Sunday morning, May 19th, preached at somebody else's, deacons called a special meeting, said I couldn't return. Sunday evening, May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday morning, May 26th, preached in a meadow, chased out of the meadow as bull was turning loose during, during the service. Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached out at the edge of the town, kicked off the highway. Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came to hear me. You see, if he had just stopped with all those discouragements along the way, he wouldn't have been able to preach to those 10,000. He didn't give up. He set his face, as it were, like a flint, that he's going to keep on doing it. Young William Wilberforce was so discouraged one night. You remember, he gave his life to fighting slavery in Great Britain. He was so discouraged one night in the early 1790s after yet another defeat in his 10-year battle against the slave trade. And tired and frustrated, he opened his Bible. He began to leaf through it. And a small piece of paper fell out, and it fluttered to the floor. And it was a letter written by John Wesley just before his death. Wilberforce read it again. Wesley wrote these words, Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? All of them together, stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. Wonderful words of encouragement that were needed at the time when he was discouraged. Helped him persevere. And in the end, Wilberforce won. Slave trade was abolished. Well, these are the two things I want to leave you with that are Christians by way of practical applications. But I want to close by speaking with any of you here this morning that do not have a right saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to stress this, my friend. If Jesus was so determined that sinners like you might be saved, shouldn't you be determined to be saved? If he went through so much that you might be saved, he had dealings with people that like to play religion. They just, they just, they just made up all kinds of rules and, they, and it, was a, it was a convenient thing for them. And especially, you remember, the Pharisees, they'd argue about this trivial thing or about that trivial thing. But they never got in earnest, you see, about repenting over their sins. They never got in earnest about seeking the truth of, of the gospel in, in, in the word of God. 
And John came, and you remember, he preached repentance. And they toyed with repentance. They didn't really repent. John preached about the Jesus that he had come to introduce. And they didn't want to listen. And so one occasion, Jesus said to them, these people that toyed with religion, that rejected what John was preaching, the law and the prophets were until John. And since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone, listen to these words, presses into it. Luke 16, 16. Jesus was determined to suffer and die, no matter what kind of anguish he would have to endure. And how do you think that you will ever be saved if you don't get in earnest? How do you think we'll ever be right with God if you just toy with religion? If you just mumble a little prayer now and then? How do you think you'll be saved unless you determine that you're going to seek the Lord Jesus? And so I call upon you, my friend, if you're outside of the Lord Jesus, to determine that you're not going to give up. You're not going to stop crying out and that he might save you from your sins. Be like that Syrophoenician woman, no matter what discouraging things come. She keeps on pleading with the Savior, and at last he yields, and he saves her, and he delivers her. I urge you to press into the kingdom with a determination that you have not known up until the present time. Jesus set his face like a flint to save sinners. And therefore, I urge you to be determined as well that you will be saved from your sins. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you and bless you for giving us such a Savior, a Savior who took our guilt and took our sins upon him. And no matter what the horror and what the pain this would involve, he went through with it all, seeing full well what it was going to take. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did set your face like a flint. We bless you that nothing could deter you from accomplishing the task assigned to you. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to learn how it is that you did this. We pray that these principles of being schooled in the school of God and being listeners, the principles that we also learned elsewhere in our study this today. We pray, Lord, that these things would come back to our minds and hearts as we need them. Help us to be a people in this place that are determined to bring sinners to Jesus, that are determined to put our sins to death, that are determined to advance the gospel in, in this area. Give us, O oh Lord, something of the spirit of this divine master who was gentle and lowly in heart, yes, but also a savior who was steeled in determination to do that which you've sent him to do. And, oh, Lord God, would you not take someone in this room that's outside of the Lord Jesus and has rebelled and has resisted and has made up excuses and has toyed with religion and has not gotten serious, would you not take such a one and bring that person to understand the, their desperate condition until they are satisfied that they have been saved from their sins and they are right with you? We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.